Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models episode 36. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm your host, Matt Kwan. Shut up. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. You shut up. Okay, fine. Then I guess we're done this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a weird mood. We just ate two pounds of cake each. Yeah, yeah. If we seem lethargic and slow today, it's probably just a sugar crash. Yeah, our mom makes some amazing carrot cakes. I think we've talked about that before. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the time when we record, it's right after we just completely went off diet and ate a bunch of stuff that was a bad idea. Yeah, and now we're just in the bedroom that we both grew up in. Yeah, you know, we've tried a whole bunch of different options. Um, We we did try uh, actually recording in like a little fairy Disney princess hut. (laughs) Um, Which is intended for our daughters, but now is our new recording booth. Our daughters have this Disney princess themed tent. And I was looking at this thing and I thought, you know what? If you were to get inside that, it would actually probably have really good acoustics. (laughs) But we wound up just going back to the old standby. So here we are. Yeah. Anyway, today's episode is about de-escalation. This is not exactly, but maybe kind of a continuation of the previous episode that we did about respect. In my mind, de-escalation is a mental model that goes beyond just a martial arts strategy, but also into just a general life strategy. Generally, by de-escalation, what we mean is that a better strategy for resolving conflict is to try to defuse it versus trying to inflame it. Now, there are always going to be cases where you have no choice but to turn the dial up. But in general, in most situations, you're going to be better off turning the dial down. And that actually even applies in a lot of situations in martial arts. From my perspective, one of the things that attracted me to jiu-jitsu in the first place was that it really is about de-escalation and defense. Matt, you tell me if you think I'm in the right here, but most other martial arts are more about offense. They're about escalating the conflict. You're trying to knock someone out or you're trying to break something, someone or throw someone for epon. Right? Yeah, no, the... the the main fa- uh, factor of jiu-jitsu, you know, the fighting off your back is uh, essentially a defensive position in a real-life situation. You know, a lot of people, a lot of guard players right there right now are thinking, well, I use my guard very offensively. And of course, that a lot of the time, that is what can make a really effective guard, but uh, definitely is a, a defensive position, you know, compared to being on top or, like you said, trying to knock somebody out. And I'm not even talking about whether you're actually trying to break something or choke someone unconscious, but just the general way that jujitsu is applied. A lot of the time, 
you're grabbing someone and you're trying to slow them down. Yeah. You're not always trying to rely on explosiveness. You're trying to drag the guy down, slow him down and burn him out. And that's one of the things about jujitsu that is unique is that you can use it as a de-escalation technique, whereas it's very hard to do that in other martial arts. Yeah. And in a situation where you're getting yourself into a like a street fight situation with someone who is untrained, it'll be even more evident because they're not going to understand the idea of reserving energy and position. And a lot of the time just holding guard on somebody could result in them uh, draining their energy and then the situation will de-escalate and you'll usually be able to do whatever you want within a minute. Sometimes when I spar with really new people, I forget that that's a problem because sometimes you get that tap just from people giving up because they burn themselves out when you mount them. That's something that happens a lot to a casual person, but when you're so used to training with experienced people, you forget that a lot of the time that might be the default response. Just let the other person burn themselves out. And that's one of the things about jiu-jitsu that is very unique. Now, in a competition scenario, probably the stakes are going to be a little bit higher and you don't necessarily want to try to grind the guy down. But even then, it is a strategy that you can use. Yeah, I've I've used all different strategies throughout my competition career and that's involved trying to go out and be the first person to to make the attack. I've tried to go out and try to be a counterfighter. Um really I don't think there is a right and wrong answer. I think it all has to do with who you're fighting and what they're giving you and how you can adapt to them and corral them into a a situation that benefits you not necessarily uh, do you always want to be the aggressor or always want to be the counterfighter? But, it, you know, every fight is different. Every fighter is different. And uh, styles always work differently with each other and jive differently with each other. There's not really a jujitsu math, just like how there is no MMA math, right? When you get two high-level guys going at it, um, it's not necessarily about who's the better counterfighter or who's the, who's the bigger aggressor. A lot of the time, it's who can adapt more and make decisions better and who can play the game better. And one of the things we've talked about in previous episodes is controlled breathing and staying loose. And this is so important in jiu-jitsu because it allows you to conserve that energy and slow your opponent down. A common mistake that beginners make is they try to ramp it up, and that's how they eventually defeat themselves by burning themselves out. Um, for someone like me, especially, who trains jiu-jitsu as a hobby, I don't have a very big gas tank. So I have to be especially careful with my energy and when you're training against an untrained opponent, that's usually going to be the case. So energy regulation is so important when you're doing jiu-jitsu. And that's a big reason why de-escalation is a valid strategy, especially when you're not sparring against an elite opponent. And yeah, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you say energy reservation and uh, staying loose, that's not to say playing a loose style or or being passive correct more so knowing when to turn it up and knowing when to slow it down and find those pit stops correct that's an important thing to clarify when we say de-escalation i'm not suggesting that you sit there and let the other guy kick your ass <laughs> but rather what i'm suggesting is that rather than trying to speed up the tempo of the fight you try to slow it down you're still dictating the pace but if you use this particular strategy you're like a boa constrictor you're trying to slow the guy down lock him up and prevent him from fighting it, in a lot of ways one of the things that i like about jujitsu is that it's not really about fighting. It's about getting your opponent to stop fighting you. It's a situation where you don't necessarily need to go out there and win by defeating someone, but you can make the other person stop fighting you. And especially against an untrained opponent, 
that is such an effective strategy in jujitsu. Yeah, especially if you can get them into into a, a really frustrating position, like if you have a really good lasso guard or if you're able to get like a two-on-one and then get an angle that is um, really hard for your opponent to get it uh, get squared up to you again, you know, that's a good that's a good sign that uh, you're in a position where you can kind of hang out a little bit and and you can progress forward without being worried about getting attacked when your your opponent's vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And the important thing here is to remember to stay active and not reactive. So it's not just a matter of grabbing someone and clinging on for dear life like a koala. You're actively still trying to control the scenario, but the difference is you're trying to prog- progressively take away your opponent's options so that they kind of get dragged into the deep waters, and that's when they start to burn out their energy. Of course, in jiu-jitsu, one of the benefits to getting a really dominant position like mount is it allows you to expend a lot less energy than your opponent is expending, mm-hmm. and that allows you to take the fight deeper even more, right? In a lot of ways, when you get someone to mount or to side control, it's not even just a matter of applying a submission, um, but it's a, a matter of wearing your opponent down in that position, uh, and even at a very high level. It's about draining your opponent's energy and taking away their will to fight, and at some point, your opponent is going to get a lot more pliable if you do that and again that's one of the great things about jujitsu you don't have to hurt someone to to be to protect yourself you just have to prevent the fight from continuing and jujitsu gives you those tools in a way that i think a lot of other martial arts don't Mm -hmm. yeah and of course mount being such a great position because you have gravity on your side and your opponent doesn't have frames and and uh, layers of guard and you know you can isolate limbs very easily like i i just came off a match of with bruno forzato in the las vegas open and uh i i ended up losing he swept past and mounted me um and uh i i learned so much from that match about what he was doing to control me so well in mount once he got to mount he basically de-escalated everything that I was able to do. He would let me move a little bit and then he would cross face me really hard to break my posture and then bring his knees to his elbows so that uh, he created really great structure and also isolated my limbs completely and I, I wasn't able to move. So um, it was a really clean performance and I, even as a black belt, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I don't really use mount very much gi or no gi and uh, it's really sort of uh re-energized my my hunger to learn mount and to play mount more just because he was so effective on top and isolated me so well so i definitely learned a lot from uh from that match I think that's a side effect of everyone going to the back now. That's such a dominant strategy. Yeah. And there's like, so I'd way rather go to the back. Yeah. I, and I think most people would. There are not many people now who would prefer to go to mount. Although personally, I do. I prefer to stay um, as a mount player and to play neon belly. I find that to be an area for me that is more successful. But again, you that just comes down to, you know, the more that you train a particular style or a particular exactly. strategy, the better you're going to be at that. And I've just spent a lot more time playing the top game versus playing the back and, and you're a big fat guy that, that is true that is true you got to use gravity on your side so but that is the thing about those positions in particular is they allow you to not just control your opponent but also to wear them down and yeah. drain their energy to the point where the fight can de-escalate and i think that's part of the reason why when you look at a lot of self-defense jujitsu you know from the old school there's such a focus on things like mount and neon belly is because it just it really sucks <laughs> Yeah. To be the guy on the bottom, right? Especially yeah. against a very, very skilled opponent. 
Um, and, you know, even as a black belt, I find this too. You know, my, my instructor uh, plays a lot of neon belly and mountain. He's not that much bigger than me, but it sucks. You know, it, it does break your composure, even if you're very experienced. Um, at some point, if your energy drains, you know, at some point you're going to go into fight or flight mode. And no matter how controlled you try to be, if the other guy is just that good at, at draining your energy, eventually your muscles are going to burn out and your breathing is going to get And your ragged. brain. You just yeah, can't yeah, make- yeah. The decisions needed to yeah. to escape out of the hole that you're in. So right? even against experienced people, that can happen. It just takes a lot more to get them there. But a really, really good grappler can force even an experienced person into that situation where they're not really defeated, but they defeat themselves. And I think that's such a powerful thing about de-escalation. Now, again, just to wrap all of this up. By no means am I, you know, am I proposing that you should just go in and be a passive panda. But I think that a big part of jujitsu is being dominant and dictating the pace, but still finding a way to de-escalate. And, and rather than trying to ramp up and burn more energy, it's more about slowing things down and having control. I find personally that when things are slower, things are a lot more predictable. When you speed things up, weird things can happen, scrambles can Mm -hmm. happen, and that introduces a a higher probability of unpredictable events. Whereas if I'm not moving much and I can prevent my opponent from moving much, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. And we talked about this in the prior episode. Jiu-Jitsu is very much a game of probabilities. And if you can make something more certain in your favor, that's a good thing. So if you can slow things down and drain your opponent's energy, there are very few strategies that have more predictable outcomes than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. we talked about funneling uh, last episode, and it's really important to funnel your, your game into situations where you can immobilize uh, your p- portions of your opponent's body, prevent them from moving, you know, isolating limbs, get dominant angles, and then sort of take a pit stop, as Cobrinha likes to say. And finding these little pit stop positions not only... Uh, uh, are positions where you can take rests and energize, but usually are also positions where you're, you know, your opponent's panicking, they lose breath, they, uh, they, they start to lose the, the ability to make decisions and, and maybe they'll make mistakes desperately trying to recover guard or whatever. So these pit stop positions are really important. It's funny you say that because I've noticed recently that I've heard anecdotally a lot of high level grapplers have taken to explaining things this way, where you're not necessarily trying to just execute the pass and get the move done and just go 100 miles an hour. But there are times when you want to strategically slow down, especially if you can force your opponent to burn more energy than they otherwise would. Especially in the master's divisions. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny you mention that. It is usually the older guys that I hear this from. Uh, So probably part of the strategy stems from the fact that they just don't have, you know, bottomless gas tanks anymore. But I I heard from uh, uh, recently uh, Cyborg was in town and I heard some people. I didn't go. I rolled with them. Oh, you went there? I I, I had the first roll with them. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was horrible. I think we talked about this in a prior episode, and I think we actually talked about this story as well, but one of the things that I understood he taught was that when you're passing, sometimes you don't want to just go and complete the pass, but you want to force the guy (laughs) to fight it a bit. You know, you want to kind of halfway pass and force the guy to to expend some energy, and then you complete the pass. So not only do you get the pass, but you get an energy advantage, and you break the guy's spirit a little bit while you're at it. Yeah, and this is is a Fabio Gurgel thing as well when he's explaining his pass. 
passing style, like, you know, stack passing and over under style passing, pressure based passing. A lot of it is they, they, they get to the point where they know they can pass and then they hold back because they want you to stay uncomfortable and waste energy and be out of alignment. Cause every second that you're out of alignment is basically bad for every, you know, every, your brain and, and your lungs and every part of your body. So if they can get you to that position where you're about to get past and then like, the way Fabio says it is ba- basically you want the guy to beg you to pa- pass him. Like, okay, please just pass because I'm, I'm, I need to move from here. And then you don't give it to him. It's ba- basically what Cyborg was doing to me as well. And of course, Cyborg is a, a legend. He just won the IBJJF heavyweight uh, Grand Prix in Vegas the same weekend that I went down. It was, it was uh, awesome. So, you know, you, and, and you don't need to necessarily be a big, huge guy to implement this game. It, it just, you have to understand how to how to place your weight and uh, and develop a pressure passing game. Yeah, I play a very similar game, and I'm not a big guy by any stretch, but I play the strategy against much larger opponents than me, and it, it totally works. It does work. I think there's a misconception that the pressure passing game is about size, but it's really not. I'm, Don't get me wrong, it helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it helps if you're a big fat guy. It, it definitely does, but you know, a lot of the time, uh, if when you're playing a pressure passing game, it's not so much about just pancaking on top of the guy, but it's more about effectively controlling their levers and usually in such a way that they're kind of folded like an accordion. Um, like when you're doing a stack pass, for example, it's a stack pass is not about your weight. It's really about your ability to lock your opponent's hips and get their legs like over their head and then kind of just, you know, collapse them. It doesn't really matter if you're big or if you're small. If you can get dominant control on the legs, you can do a stack pass. I do it all the time against even much larger people. So, This strategy is a strategy that will work for a lot of different body types, and the pressure passing game is an example of de-escalation in a lot of senses, because you can play it in a very slow and controlled manner, and in such a way that you're burning through your opponent's energy much faster than you're burning through your own. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's funny, one of the things that you've talked about before, especially in the context of footlocks, is that the big increase in um in knowledge in the footlock game over the past few years has been that we've now got all of these footlock positions that we didn't really have before it used to be that footlocks were kind of like a a a submission that you would dive for you know if you wanted to get a footlock it was kind of looked as something where you just roll the dice and throw your whole body on it and you either had it or you didn't but the big advancement in the last few years has been the establishment of leg lock based positions like all of the different ashy variations and understanding that just like when you talk about like side control neon belly mount there's a whole hierarchy of footlock positions as well and some offer better control than others which is really a a great example of position over submission right Um, that's really kind of the big advancement when it comes to footlocks is we now have positions whereas before we kind of really just had submissions and i think this is a great example of how when you add de-escalation capabilities into a strategy it makes the strategy better you know before footlocks used to be really kind of like a, a almost like a, a, um, a sac- yeah. yeah it was like a sacrifice technique in a lot of ways now they're not and now if you want to play a footlock game i mean if you're good at leg locking you can hold someone in a in a standard leg lock position even like standard ashy right uh you can hold someone in that position for a decent amount of time if you're pretty good at it and that really demonstrates that when you add the the positional strategy around submissions 
it's going to increase the probability of everything working in your benefit. It makes things more predictable. And it's also more of a strategy of de-escalation because you no longer need to really try to hurt the person to win. You can now focus on control. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, you talked about catch wrestling earlier, Matt. This is one of the things that I think is very unique about jujitsu is that control is given so much of a priority over actually establishing submissions yeah and you can like you you'll still see some of the guys from the old world uh, of leg locks still doing competitions here and there like Imanari was just at the kasai a few weeks ago and you'll see dean lister jump back into competition like these guys that have the old school style of leg locking where it is more catch based and uh you know not to shit on them but like Imanari, as as a fun as he is to watch he he didn't do very well and didn't land any leg locks and it's because his game is a very much a of a you know a catch based game where he will literally just throw himself into a into a an Imanari role like he has some really cool attacks but um, very few finishes nowadays. Uh, I, I don't see him leg lock anyone, and it's because people understand when they're in trouble. They understand how to get back into base. They understand how to clear the knee. They they look at leg locking now. Uh, may, maybe back in the day when Imanari was fighting guys in MMA who maybe didn't understand leg locks or didn't know how to get out or just rolled, and 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 as a result they left their knee in the wrong position. Nowadays guys are so aware with the uh, the current explosion and the the ever uh, evolving landscape that is leg locking that uh, you know th- these guys aren't really worried about Imanari's leg locking uh, strategies anymore and they're able to just uh, do jujitsu with him and basically shut that whole game down and it is because of things like uh, you know all, all the hierarchy of the leg lock entanglements the the double trouble concepts of controlling the free leg these are all like controlling the free leg is one of the best de-escalation situations you can use in leg locking because you literally control both levers to your opponent's hips so if you're in an entanglement you control both of their feet there's no way that they can really come up in base effectively and and uh, therefore start getting their hips mobile and clearing their knee line so it's a you know double trouble is a really important thing to think about if you're if you're trying to improve your leg locks and if your people are escaping your leg locks uh, you're probably not thinking about controlling the free leg enough. Yeah, it, it all ties ba- back to rotational control, right? If you apply the double trouble strategy and control that free leg, you deny your opponent the ability to roll out of submissions, which is such a common way to a- attempt to escape leg locks. I, I don't want to say it, it works all the time, but it does create openings and scenarios that will allow your opponent to get out. Yeah. Um, but it also comes down to predictability, right? In my mind, good jujitsu is about creating predictable outcomes and that's one of the reasons why de-escalation is so important because if you focus on positional dominance rather than just trying to get a submission and being done with it then you know the problem with submissions is they're exciting when you get them right but and but and if you're not paying attention when you're training you might realize you're only getting them like five percent of the time and you're getting smashed the other 95 percent but you don't think about that because your brain is so fixated on the wins that you get i used to have this problem where you know i i when I was sparring, I used to try to win, right? I wanted I wanted to win, so I'd go for these submissions. And a lot of the time, especially being a more experienced guy, a lot of the time I would get them and I'd feel great. But if I were to actually plot it out, I'd probably find that I was only, you know, technically winning by submission like 45% of the time. And when you don't get that, you're going to wind up losing the position and bad things can happen. Whereas now, my focus is more on creating predictable outcomes and holding the position. And actually, what's interesting is 
is my submission rate in training is way down now. Like I, I very, very seldomly actually submit people in training, even like white belts and blue belts, because my strategy has changed so that I I don't go for submissions. I let submissions happen if it's the obvious outcome of what's going on, yeah, right? You're not forcing I'm it. not forcing it, but rather I'm trying to establish such positional dominance that a submission just kind of falls into my lap mm-hmm. versus trying to roll the dice and get a submission. And if I lose it, then I'm on like bottom mount or something, right? That's what I want to avoid. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's funny. One of the, the mental fallacies that I think we talked about in a way earlier episode is resulting. And resulting is when you get the outcome of something confused with your strategy, right? Like it's it's possible to have a really great strategy, but just due to probabilities, it doesn't go your way that day. But maybe it's still a good strategy and you could stick with it. One of the worst things that you can do is, you know, throw out your strategy right off the bat because of a single win or a single loss. There, there could be motivating or there could be um, external factors that led to that win or loss that are somewhat independent of your strategy, or maybe it's just chance. You know, there could be a lot of reasons. So the important thing is you need, you know, you don't want to assume that just because you won, your strategy was good. And just because you lost, your strategy is is bad. Uh, And that's part of the reason why I think position over submission is so important is because if you're just focused on submissions, then you kind of get this resulting fallacy in your head where you're thinking, well, I must be doing things right because I'm submitting people in training. But in reality, you know, maybe you're not actually that good. It's just that you're you're able to catch these against uh, less skilled training partners. Whereas when you're really tested, actually being able to hold position and advance position would prove to be so much more useful. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a room where you're kind of the head, the the top dog, you know, then you got to ask yourself, am I creating false positives? If I'm tooling everyone, like, like I remember when I first opened my club, uh, about a year in, I was, I was getting decent at leg locks and, and virtually no one I trained with at the time at my school did leg locks. So I was leg locking people at will. And there was, you know, probably about six, six to 10 months of just like any leg lock I wanted to get, I could get. Nowadays it's at my gym. It's really hard to heel hook anyone because it's such a common, it's basically part of our culture now. So it's like (laughs) back then I was getting all these false positives that my leg locks were awesome. Then I would go into a competition against someone who's also versed at leg locks and I wouldn't be able to finish them. It'd be a really frustrating moment and it'd be back to the drawing board again, you know, and I had my fair share of losses as well because my mechanics just weren't in place or the strategies weren't in place. Right. Um, it, it and now like just to your point steve like as i train more and more i find that my game is actually moving backwards in terms of uh flashiness like now mm-hmm. now I, i'm like i said earlier i'm focusing on mount now and which is a, like one of the more traditional positions in jiu-jitsu whereas before i was you know through purple and brown i was all about rolling back takes barambolos crab rides like I, I would i would i would intentionally go out of my way to go upside down i would intentionally try and do flashy things and i would actually pay for this a lot in competition if i would try and implement a game where i try to invert because maybe I'm trying to be like uh, the the Mayo brothers or the Mendez bros. And the fact is, is I'm just, I'm, I'm not quite good enough to make that a, uh, to make that my position of choice. So now I'm just focusing on some of the more traditional aspects of jujitsu, managing distance, staying in a good alignment and, uh, and, you know, setting up my frames and, you know, using, using older positions like the mount. And uh, it could be because also I'm, I've suffered some injuries recently and I just feel that, uh, practicing my game for more higher percentage 
safer positions is going to pay off more in competition. And it definitely has lately in competition felt a lot safer to try and not just uh, go for Barambolos when they might not be there. For me, I've never really gone for that kind of stuff simply because of economy of motion. I just prefer more basic techniques that require less movement simply because that usually means less openings, more predictability. But a lot of it too is just because I'm lazy and I like easy stuff. Yeah, and and I I think it is pretty common for people to dabble in all different types of jiu-jitsu throughout their journey. I definitely, you know, throughout all the ranks, I've my game has changed a hundred percent like the whole time has just been non-stop changing you know you find a new position or a new guard and you spend a few months playing with it it becomes really fun and then you know you move on so it's 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 a natural progression and evolution of jiu-jitsu to to stay fluid and keep moving rather than just i i think one of the worst things you could do is like this is my game this is what i'm gonna do and then not not uh differ at all in any different way so more important, I think, to keep the game moving and keep studying because it's not really a sport that can be exhausted. Yeah, you want to keep an open mind because things change, your goals change, you might have weaknesses that just never got exposed and then something might happen that exposes them one day and you realize that you need to patch them up. You never want to have kind of a fixed mindset where you just think I've got my game defined and I'm just never going to stray from it. The problem with having that kind of mindset too is it makes you into a defensive thinker where you've kind of already decided not to use new ideas before you've even really fully processed them. So you always want to be open to new stuff and even if it's not the the technique or strategy strategy for you, you want to at least consider it. But I think it does speak to the power of jiu-jitsu that no matter how much you get exposed to, everyone seems to kind of eventually come back to the core fundamentals. <laughs> you know, th- there are all of these various offshoots of, of strategies and different types of guards. But at the end of the day, everything kind of orbits around the stuff that's existed since the Gracies worked on it, right? It, it's interesting how a lot of the traditional fundamental stuff still seems to hold up even after all of the advancements, especially in the last decade or so, where the knowledge base of jiu-jitsu has just grown so much. It's interesting that we still all come back to the same series of techniques and positions that have been used for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the classics always come back, and definitely for me right now, I'm I'm enjoying a lot of the classic positions in jiu-jitsu. So when it comes to de-escalation, in addition to actually sparring, this has implications to behavior outside of sparring. Uh, a common example is when people at the gym go too hard. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. This is a very, very common scenario. Uh, you know, you're stuck with a partner who is just, they're in it to win it. You're maybe worried about injury. You're getting frustrated and angry. How do you deal with that situation? Um, there's a few ways. You know, one is you can try and fight fire with fire, which is usually not a good idea. That a lot of the time... Maybe for you, yeah. bitch. Well, it depends on the situation, right? I mean, if it's someone that you know and you want to have a competitive role, that's one thing. But if it's someone that you don't really think is necessarily in control, sometimes you might not feel comfortable yeah. in that scenario, especially if you're at a skill or a size disadvantage. Yes, that's what I was going to say. You know, for, for us being black belts, it's not so intimidating if someone really wants to go nuts. But if you're a white belt and you're fighting someone much larger than you... 
It can get really uncomfortable if you get the feeling that the other person is trying to smash you. And this is a situation where de-escalation can be a really valid strategy. Um, you definitely don't want to escalate in a situation where, you know, you, you maybe you are at an experience or a size disadvantage and you're worried for your safety from my perspective, that's where this comes into play. And this is different from like, you know, two black belts having an advanced role. This is a situation more where you are a junior person and you're being put in a scenario where you're uncomfortable. What you don't want to do is try to turn the dial up to meet the the other person's intensity. Someone's probably going to get injured. You're going to get mad at the other person. You might never speak to them again. Someone might leave the gym. The situation can really escalate, uh, but this is an area where de-escalation can help. Uh, you know, at the bare minimum, you can always just tell the person, hey, I'm not comfortable going this intense. I think it's actually completely valid to have that conversation, especially if you're junior. You know, if you're a white belt, it is completely reasonable to say, hey, look, I don't feel safe here. I feel like we don't have a lot of control right now and I'm worried about injury. But that said, if you want to play it out and you want to actually try to roll with someone in that situation, de-escalation is a perfectly valid strategy. You can grab the person, slow them down. This is especially easier in the gi where you can use grips to your advantage. Um, Really, when you're fighting someone who is trying to rely on aggression, a lot of the time the best strategy is rather than trying to meet that aggression head on, to try to slow them down. I do this a lot when I'm sparring with really aggressive wrestlers because I know if I try to wrestle a wrestler, it's not going to go well. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it um, it depends case on case per case. Like some guys, like you said, if if someone's a really strong wrestler and you know that you're going to have to concede the bottom position, you know it's it's probably a good idea to get to the bottom position on your terms and then try and slow them down. Whereas if it's somebody who's maybe a lower rank who's trying to take it to you. And you know that you have the technical edge on them and they're really trying to be aggressive and use aggression to out technique you, you know, like there's a guy at my club who comes at me really hard and I love him for it, but I'm not going to just try and slow him down. I feel like he's at a level where if I dish it back to him, he improves greatly from that. Even if, even if I do kick his ass in the end, he still benefits a lot from it. So it's a, it's a case by case thing. And it's also, you know, because I'm a competitor, a lot of the time, if someone comes at me hard, I I usually go back hard with them and match it or exceed the level of, of pace because I I feel comfortable doing it. And because it's, it's good in the long run for me. Um, if, If it's someone who is like brand new and they literally, don't know what they're doing I actually feel more threatened sometimes because I feel like you could get clipped in the face or you could get an elbow somewhere where you're not expecting it because they're doing stupid shit that that someone who's experienced wouldn't do and I think I think everyone who's listening to this knows what I'm talking about sometimes the the newer people in the room can be the most dangerous so a lot of the time if I'm rolling with someone who's new or even worse new and really big um, the best option is to try and just de-escalate the roll, slow it down, and then just out-technique them from there. And then you, obviously, you can build upon that and and advance. It's one thing when someone is being intense because that's part of an intelligent planned strategy. It's another thing when someone is being 
being intense due to lack of experience. And to your point, de-escalation is not a universal answer to all problems. There are times when you have no choice but to escalate. There are times when you need to do that. De-escalation is a tool in your toolbox, and it's something that you should be ready and willing to use. It's like when, you know, if, if you have a conflict with someone, I mean, obviously you don't want to escalate it and fight them, but that doesn't mean you never fight. There are situations when fighting is the only option because your opponent will not accept anything else, right? So um, de-escalation is not one of those things that you must do 100% of the time, but it's a strategy. And the example you gave is a great example of when you would de-escalate when you're sparring with someone where they're unpredictable, they're inexperienced, and they're being too aggressive. And in that situation, de-escalation is also a very good teaching technique because it demonstrates to the other person that you don't need to be all spazzy and crazy. You can slow it down and still be very effective. And I think everyone who's listening, who's been training for a while, can probably relate to that experience where you went up against someone way more experienced experienced than you and you just went a hundred percent at them and they just barely moved and they slowed you down and they ground you out and they beat you in what probably seemed like an effortless role right that's an example of where de-escalation is a valid strategy if there's a skill discrepancy because it allows you to end the fight without actually having to fight and that's again what in my mind one of the most powerful things about jujitsu is that you can end a fight without actually having to fight once you've got that experience advantage yeah and just just remember for all you new guys out there uh if you you know if you happen to tap out your instructor or you know you have a really good round with them consider that maybe they allowed it to happen and they were humble enough to to let you get to certain positions um because i've (laughs) i've heard a lot of guys brag about how oh i took it to my instructor the other day (laughs) and i know the instructor i'm like Oh God, you, you just don't even realize that you were given, uh, the opportunity to learn and instead you, you, you think you're some big shot. So what happens is, you know, if your instructor catches wind of this is next time they're going to, they're going to, they're going to fuck you up. So yeah, Yeah, it's, it's one of those things about where you're, you're so inexperienced that you don't even really kind of understand how deep the well goes and you don't, (laughs) you don't even realize how far out of your depth you were that the other guy was basically just trying to make the role a positive learning experience for you it's like you got two parties one party is trying to be a good teacher and de-escalate the situation the other party is out for blood right and they don't even realize that they're playing different games yeah it's happened to me before too and it's not it's not good when you hear about somebody bragging about (laughs) tapping you out so you basically just you're like okay I'll remember next time and then next time you see them in class you're like all right well I got a little payback now I don't get pretty I don't don't get spiteful in jujitsu uh, often at all, but if something like that happens, it's like, well, I want to say a message next time in a nice way. You know, I'm not yeah. going to like face grind them or anything like that, but you know, maybe I'll get to mount and I'll, I'll put my bare chest on their face for five minutes. <laughs> See, I mean, I, I, I face grind people just because that's part of my game. I, I don't just need because an excuse. You should. To, yeah, I don't need an excuse to do it. It's just a good it's strategy. A men- it's a mental model. <laughs> I, th- I think we've been talking about like the shoulder of justice for the longest time. It is like such, especially in the gi, it is such just a vile way of just taking away someone's will to fight. Like yeah. that is an example of de-escalation. Is when you you get to that position where you're inside control on someone and you get your arm around your head or around their head and you just grind your shoulder into their yeah. face. <laughs> no, there's there's definitely been times when I've rolled with guys and I'm and during the roll I'm like, okay, this guy is like. 
he's going way too damn hard. You know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm in crossface. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to like, I'm going to crossface him hard right now. And you just hear them, oh, and they're just <laughs> immediately their alignment's broken and they yeah. become a lot weaker. And you're like, see, now this happens. <laughs> <laughs> Let this be a learning yeah, experience. Now this happens. You. And and I think uh, if you're an instructor or you're a higher rank guy, or even if you're not a higher rank guy, like Steve said earlier, there's nothing wrong after a role. Um, you know, if, if the person was going too hard, to say hey you know like you're you can go hard with me um because i'm i'm at a certain level and and honestly i need that for -hmm. for my for my own preparation but like i wouldn't recommend you go that hard all the time uh especially depending on who you go with people are all going to react differently to to the energy that you give them some people don't mind they like the hard rolls and then other people might get uh you know they might get offended and they might they might think that you're actually trying to hurt them right Mm -hmm. so um and that, that's a fair thing for it's, people to be totally afraid fair. of because some people are actually out there trying to hurt, right? Yeah, so, some people don't don't consider these things, right? Like uh, you try not to fill your gym with a bunch of meatheads ideally. And I think I think it's safe to <clears throat> for the majority of the time to not exceed over like an 80% role. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that rule. But going 100% every round is just – it's not the smartest strategy. And for someone like me who has to train, you know, like – Sometimes two or three times a uh, a day, it's like it's just not a smart way for me to line up my training. It's more it's more valuable for me to manage the the tempo and man you know manage the role rather than just say every role I'm going a hundred percent. It's not it's not good for longevity. Yeah, yeah. For my for me personally, if I'm going to to perform well, I want to try to perform well at around seventy or eighty percent. Simply because I don't want to have to rely on going a hundred percent. Right. I also find it's easier to learn if I'm going a bit slower because you have time to be more conscious and deliberate. And it's also easier to understand why your your strategy worked. Right. If you're going a hundred percent and your strategy works sometimes it's hard to know if it worked because it was a good strategy or if it worked because you were going a hundred percent that's a really good point too yeah so it's sometimes you've got to remove the intensity from the strategy and see if it still holds up under that kind of scrutiny because you can always turn the dial back up right but if you turn the dial down that's when you really can expose holes in a lot of strategies and better understand whether they actually work or if they just rely on athleticism and brute force and speed yeah there's there's very uh few exceptions of of athletes where you know i i feel like going 100 percent is a you know is a good idea like unless you're like bouchesha or leandro Lowe or the mayow brothers and you know it's your co- competition is your job and every role you have is no nutella then that's that's different right that we're, we're talking about the majority of practitioners mm-hmm. and uh and the majority of people doing jujitsu so yeah absolutely so one of the things about de-escalation, of course, is that it's not just a jujitsu concept. It's the kind of concept that is applicable to almost all walks of life. Now, of course, as we talked about earlier, de-escalation is not a strategy that works 100% of the time. A big part of de-escalation is understanding when you're in a situation where you are beyond where de-escalation can help you, right? I mean, if it's like if, if you are being militarily invaded by another country, you know, at that point, maybe de-escalation is not going to help you. Um, but for general day-to-day conflicts, 
the big difference between, from my experience between people who perform really well in their field versus people who don't or people who are constantly in, in trouble or, or getting into bad situations, really it comes down to their choice to escalate or de-escalate. I think all of us know people who just always seem to have drama and be in trouble or, you know, like, it, it, you know, it seems like some people, trouble follows them. You know, they're always like getting arrested or getting into fights. But then, you know, the vast majority of people out there never have those problems. They Those problems seem to gravitate and cluster to a select few. And in my mind, that all comes down to your personal psychology about whether you choose in that moment when you're provoked or when you're stressed, do you escalate the situation or do you de-escalate the situation? Yeah. And I, th- I think, uh, you're probably a little bit better than me at this, Steve. Uh, I think, I think with our personalities, you're, uh, I'm a little bit more hot blooded than you in a lot of ways. And, and, uh, Definitely in my last career in the culinary arts, I made my own enemies in the kitchen and and at the same time had, you know, people that I liked. And there were times when I definitely was out of line and uh, could have could have used more de-escalation now that I'm a business owner and people coming through my door and staying in my gym puts food on the table I have to I have to exercise things like de-escalation a lot more and be and be careful if you know luckily I haven't had any real situations where there's like conflict in the gym but I know if I put 20 30 40 years in this field something's going to happen eventually and there's going to be some you know I'm going to need to be diffuse uh, I'm going to be needed to diffuse a situation between somebody I'm sure so uh it's funny how before when especially when I was younger I was a lot more hot-blooded but now I feel like um it's something that I have to keep in the back of my mind and it's just it is it's a smarter way to go through life I think mm-hmm. um there's there's very rare times now where I feel the need to to let anything escalate further than, than, uh, you know, what, when it could be, when it could be cooled off, which is usually the safer, smarter, uh, decision to make. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one because, you know, a lot of the time, the reason you escalate is because your ego has been hurt somehow, right? You know, someone has someone usually in a lot of cases, someone has intentionally tried to hurt you through their actions or, uh, you know, for, for maybe you're just really, really frustrated in the moment. There can be a lot of reasons why you might choose to escalate, but usually escalating is a lose-lose scenario. That's the yeah. thing that took, you know, it takes most people a long time to realize is that when you escalate something, normally you're going to lose and the other guy's going to lose at the end of the day. And that's why, like, when you look at things like lawsuits, the reason why a lot of lawsuits eventually end in, like, settlement or arbitration is because actually escalating things all the way to the end is a massive, massive pain in the ass, and it winds up hurting people more than it helps. And and this is the thing that I think it takes a while for people to understand. Even if you're 100% in the right sometimes escalating to get your way is going to make things worse. Um, you see it's, you see this a lot in like office environments, for example, where maybe there's someone who's like really, really smart. And yeah, maybe they are right most of the time, but they're just a total asshole about it. And the problem with those kinds of people is because they're always escalating the temperature in the room. No one wants to work with them. So you can be like the most smart, right person in the room, but if no one wants to work with you, you're probably going to be the first one to get fired, right? It's, it's something that I think a lot of people, especially really smart, 
smart and capable people don't understand because they're so used to being right that they don't understand that there's more to life than being right, right? You've got to live with the people around you at the end of the day. And if you're constantly escalating things, you're going to spend so much time doing damage control and putting out fires that you're not really going to live up to your maximum potential. And you're also going to burn out all of the relationships around you. Yeah, your reputation is going to go to shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you see this a ton in the MMA community, right? Or, or the jiu-jitsu community. Like, just go on, like, Reddit or search the news and you're going to hear all of these stories about, like, gym owners and famous practitioners who who have just completely ruined their reputation by doing something incredibly stupid one time in the moment. Um, and But, you know, if someone did that one time in the moment, probably there's a good chance that that's been their strategy for years and it just finally came back to bite them. You know what? Uh, something you brought up, Matt, which is a good example is that when you're a business owner um, and, and when you're the head instructor, a lot of the time over the years, you're going to be called into situations where you kind of have to play like therapist, mediator, de-escalator. I, I have seen this so many times and in so many weird different ways. Like I have seen situations where the head instructor had to like settle a fight in the parking lot and had to de-escalate everything and like be the, be the, the adult in the room, you know, two people want to fight and the head instructor has to go in and calm them down and get the police involved and do it properly. Like I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen head instructors who have had to defuse domestic abuse situations because that can happen too. Right. You know, if it's one of your students, this kind of stuff is going to happen. If you are a senior leader in your school or in your community, you are going to be called on to perform that de-escalation service. And let me tell you, if you don't develop the temperament to do that, you're never going to succeed as a leader. It just isn't going to happen because a leader is someone who is able to get the team back together when things are, when temperatures are running hot. Um, That's so important to have as an attribute, especially if you're like a gym owner. But the good news is this is an attribute that, that anyone can learn. And most people, I think, honestly do learn it. It just takes a long, long time. You're certainly better off learning how to to de-escalate though earlier in your life versus later on because otherwise you're going to have a lot of regrets if you're you know 50 years old and you've just figured this out now and you're going to look back on all of the years that you made stupid decisions right it's it's really better to try to figure out and sort out how to de-escalate situations in your 20s if you can and like you said a lot of it has to do with just swallowing your ego and um as a as a man it's kind of it kind of goes hard, yeah. it goes against your natural reaction you know men tend to fight naturally and and mm-hmm. uh tend to be more more uh co- they, they they're more comfortable with conflict than i think women are generally mm-hmm. and and tend to react with conflict uh react to conflict with conflict a lot more naturally and that is kind of your first impulse depending on your personality so it's it's definitely not easy to swallow your pride and and try to resolve things when sometimes you just want to throw it right back at them. And of course I'm guilty of this too, multiple times. And all you can do is try, you know, every day is just try and try and make the right decisions when it comes up. Yeah. And it's, it's especially hard when you know that you're in the right, right? Because it is really That's hard. Even harder, yeah. It's really hard to be the one in the right. And then to still have to swallow your pride and deescalate. But that's the sign of like real, real black belt level maturity is that it, it doesn't even matter if you're right or wrong. You know that the right thing to do is to deescalate. Um, it's something that I, I 
you know, I, you see a lot in in like um in law, especially because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the time with lawsuits, it just becomes such a war of attrition when it comes to like money and time that eventually, you know, people realize the best option, unless you absolutely have to, is to de-escalate. But like we said earlier, in the context of jujitsu, de-escalation is not the answer 100% of the time, right? I mean, if there are situations where you have kind of like crossed the Rubicon and now you absolutely have to fight and you have to know when those situations are. And that's really the hardest thing about kind of being an adult and dealing with conflict is knowing when it's time to fight and knowing when it's not worth it, right? I mean, you don't, for example, yeah, you want to de-escalate. But you don't want to be a doormat, right? You don't want to be the kind of person who everyone just always tramples over and you're always de-escalating because that's just what you're trained to do and you don't want to fight. I, I am guilty of this where, you know, I de-escalation is something that I, I, I consider to be kind of like a primary skill that I use at work a lot of the time. And it took me a long time to realize you don't want to de-escalate 100% of the scenarios because sometimes the best strategy is to stand your ground and to be firm about something. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you necessarily need need to fight, but there are times when you need to stick to your principles and stand your ground. And there's also times when it's just not worth it or it's, you know, there isn't going to be a return on investment if you decide to make that fight. Um, The thing that someone once said to me, you know, when talking about kind of these situations is like, you need to ask yourself when you're in one of these scenarios, is this the hill that I'm willing to die on? (laughs) You know, like, is, is this issue so important that I absolutely must be right? And can I live with the consequences of having to fight that fight? Like, is it that important? What you'll probably find is in 90% of the cases, you'll realize, you know what? This is actually a non-issue. I'll just let it go because by next week, everyone will have forgotten. But there will be those times when it, you think, you know what? This really is important for my career, for my well-being, uh, for justice. I actually do need to stand my ground on this one. But even then... A lot of the time, like, full-out fighting is usually not the best answer. It's usually better to try to be an assertive leader. Like, actually having to fight someone should usually be the last course in your sequence of decisions. Uh, you should try almost every other opportunity to resolve a conflict without having to fight before you rely on actually fighting. Yeah, and to your point, like, you really do have to balance the dichotomy. Like, uh, in, in a street situation, if if all you can think about is de-escalating and you're trying to yeah. trying to talk someone down and your hands are completely down... And you're within striking range and then all of a sudden they sucker punch you. That's because you failed to recognize that there was a real threat there and that de-escalation is possibly not an option. Exactly. When, when the person you're talking to, maybe they're drunk, maybe they're just really aggressive or or they just want to hit someone, right? It's it's more important to, to if you know, while you're trying to de-escalate, you keep in mind things like managing distance and, you know, mm-hmm. having your hands up and things like, not in a threatening way, but in but also in a almost like a de-escalating way but but at the same time if your hands are up they can act as frames mm-hmm. and uh and and you can you can still de-escalate with your hands up and then you know expecting that things could go wrong even if you are trying to escalate de-escalate the situation if you if uh if the person that you happen to be dealing with doesn't want that and they try and strike you at least you have the ability to you know implement some kind of a you know get out of the way change levels um you know get a dominant angle, whatever you're going to do, at least you have contingency plans for the, for when the de-escalation fails. And if you just don't, if you don't even think about that as an option and you just, you know, no, I'm just not going to fight. I refuse to fight. And then you get sucker punched and, and you hit your head, then it's, that's also no good. So it's a, it's a balance that needs to be, uh, you know, it, ne- it needs to be balanced. 
in terms of strategy. Yeah, yeah. And there may also be some situations where de-escalation just can't even be a consideration. I mean, if someone is coming at you with a knife, for example, that is maybe a situation where you might want to move right on to plan B before you try to de-escalate the scenario. Uh, so really, I, what I if there's a takeaway from this discussion, it is that de-escalation is a powerful strategy in all walks of life. Usually, it's going to result in the best outcomes for everyone involved. It requires you kind of putting your ego on the shelf in a lot of cases. But it's probably going to be for the best. But that said, there are times when de-escalation is not going to be the the answer. And you need to develop the intuition to know when you're in one of those situations and apply the strategy accordingly. Um, in terms of just general strategies for like actually de-escalating, you know, and I, I'm talking not so much about jujitsu now, but you know, at, at like at work, if you're in like a political argument, if you have a fight with someone in your family or one of your friends, you know, there's a lot of different strategies that you can apply. Um, one of the ones that I've heard people talk about is the, the three A model, which basically means like uh, the three A's are acknowledge, apologize, and act. So basically if th this is something that gets used a lot in customer service, actually, if someone is really, really pissed off. It doesn't matter if they're right or they're wrong. You acknowledge that they're upset. You apologize and that they're not, and not necessarily apologizing for anything that you have done. You're not necessarily taking ownership or blame of the problem. Well, actually, I guess in a lot of ways you are taking ownership are taking of ownership, it, but you're not taking the blame for the yeah. problem. Like yeah. you can, you can be sorry for someone without having to be sorry because you did it. You know, if you're, yeah. if a friend of mine is upset, I can be sorry, even if I had nothing to do with the reason. It just shows empathy. And then the third A is you act, meaning you provide some sort of action to, to as a make good and to demonstrate that you are committed to making the problem go away. So like a common thing is like if someone is yelling at you and they're mad because, you know, again, to give like a tech support answer, if you've got an angry customer, you acknowledge the validity of their claim with, without trying to argue with them or deny it. That is the worst thing you can do if someone's upset is deny that they have good reason to be upset, even if they don't. You don't want to uh, further escalate the situation. Or so, go right into your defense. Yeah, or go right into your defense. So you acknowledge that they're upset. You apologize. If it is your fault, then yes, apologize for what you did. But if it's not your fault, you can still apologize because you feel bad for the person and then offer up an action that you hope will help resolve the issue, either resolving the issue or getting you partway there. Um, it's a really good strategy if someone is really, really wound up for kind of taking them down. It's a good strategy because it allows you to show empathy for the other party as well. Uh, it's a really good technique if you have someone who is like directly mad and you have to deal with them directly on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Uh, another strategy that you can deploy is, and this is especially useful when you're talking, uh, like you're arguing philosophy or politics with someone and things are getting really heated and you just can't seem to get on the same page. You can kind of wind back the discussion and take it to a higher level. So like if I'm arguing with um, gun control with someone about, you know, maybe I'm like pro and they're against or whatever, um, rather than just continuing to belabor and argue, argue my talking points over and over again, I can take a step back with that person and maybe look at things at a higher level and say, and say that, look, rather than arguing about gun control law, maybe we can talk about our goals in general regarding safety and freedom. And like, what does this mean to us? Take things right back to step one as to what we actually believe. And then from there, build towards a solution. Uh, because, because if you do that, you'll, you'll eventually, probably, you'll eventually walk back to the 
point where you and the other person can get to something that you both mutually agree on as a universal principle. And then you can go forward from there and hopefully together you can develop a solution that maybe you never thought of before, but that actually makes everyone somewhat happy, right? You know, rather than arguing about whether I'm pro or, or uh, against gun control, I can say like, look, maybe do, do we at least all agree that, you know, people should have the liberty to own guns and do we agree that people should ha um, have a degree of like safety? And then from there, maybe you can kind of take a step forward and get a bit more detailed and eventually come to a solution. So taking a step back when you're having a disagreement with someone, a, a good time to do this is if you and the other person are so entrenched in your position that just no one is willing to move, try taking a step back and talking more about like the first principles behind what you're arguing about. And then from there, you'll, you'll probably realize, I mean, this, this actually is similar to Rappaport's rules, which we just talked about in the prior episode. You'll probably realize that you and the other person actually fundamentally agree at the high level. It's just in the details where you disagree. And you'll probably find that you and the other person are not really as different as you thought you were. So again, another good strategy for de-escalation. Man, you sound like you're really good at de-escalation, Steve. I try. <laughs> Some really good stuff. I think I think this is really valuable information for a lot of people. Uh, you know, especially if you're at like a a family dinner and you get into heated conversations. God knows it happens to me <laughs> a lot. And uh, I think I think if people sort of were on the same page in terms of how how they can meet common ground, I think uh, you know a lot less conflict and arguing would happen. And and people would see a lot more eye to eye because I think at the end of the day, you know, despite your uh, opinions on things, you do kind of want those same things. You want liberty and, and freedom and safety and all these, but, but how, how you're going to come to a solution might differ or how, how you see the world might differ. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we all kind of have a common goal and, and it's important to recognize that we do have common ground and we're not just disagreeing on everything. Yeah. And th the problem is when you argue with someone for people who are who don't really have a lot of self-awareness, it's very easy to get so caught up in your your position that you just get entrenched and you get defensive and you refuse to budge at all. And once someone gets into that mindset, there's really nothing you can do to convince them to move, right? At least not while they're in that mindset. You've got to get them out of that mindset before you can persuade them to do anything. And you also have to be open to them persuading you. This yes. is a big mistake that yeah. people make when they're trying to, to like debate and argue is they're thinking thinking, how can I get this other person to think what I want them to think? But that's not what you should be trying to do. You should be thinking, how can I and this other person mutually solve whatever problem yeah. we're talking about? Yeah. And actually listen to their ideas rather than thinking about your next point. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. There's something that they call the backfire effect. And what this basically says is if someone believes something and you go up with them and you confront them with like direct evidence that they're wrong, they're actually going to get more entrenched in their beliefs. So if like you have, if you have certain beliefs on some matter and I come up to you with like 800 like scientific papers, you're probably going to wind up being less convinced that I'm right than before because you're, you know, first of all, you've been attacked. And when you've been attacked, your natural reaction is to get defensive, but also you've got your ego attached to your ideas, right? Most people, we've talked in the past about mindfulness and how you don't want to have your ego attached to your ideas, but the reality is everyone does to some degree. You don't want to if you can avoid it though. And one of the things that you can do to de-escalate is rather than just going up to someone and telling them, hey, you're wrong and here's why, take a step back, listen to their argument, and again, rewind the clock in the conversation and until you guys both agree on 
a common statement, like a common high level philosophy. Like, yeah, I, look, we both agree that we should, you know, we don't, we, we want to have liberty. We want to have, allow people to have guns, but we also want to have a, you know, a safety net, a security net in place so that we all feel safe out in public. Because from there, what you might find is you and the other person wind up negotiating a solution that is completely different from what the two of you envisioned in the first place. And that's how you collaborate with diverse opinions. You know, everyone talks about how diversity is great. This is how you actually engage with people who are diverse and different from you. If you just go in there and you argue all the time, then no one's listening to anyone and it's not going to be productive. So it could be very viable that the person that you're having a discussion with is just not going to be receptive to any kind of conversation and Mm -hmm. is so stuck in their ways. So at that point, what do you do? Well, on one hand, I mean, it's okay to agree to disagree as long as you do it respectfully, right? It, sometimes you just will never get on the same page with the person. I mean, if their beliefs are just so fundamentally different from yours that there is no common ground, then you can still agree to move in either different directions or even kind of a halfway same direction without being fully on the same page. I, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but you can say like, look, clearly you and I just disagree on this, but Will you roll the dice with me and try my idea? Just, you know, give it a go. We can always bail out later. Will you at least try this? Or vice versa, you can offer to try their idea. For low-stakes scenarios, this is a totally viable approach. Probably not going to work on something like gun control, but, you know, for things like office decisions that, or, or, you know, something to do with your business, a lot of the time this is a really good approach for just moving past unproductive conversations and focusing on getting shit done. Um, another strategy that you can use to de-escalate is humor, right? And we've talked about the importance of humor in the past. Uh, very few things de-escalate a conflict situation like humor. So if you can find a way to inject humor into a tense situation, it will almost always make things better. And this, I think, is part of the reason why having uh, having humor and comedy um, in, in our society is so important. And, and to avoid being overly um, sensitive to the topics that they cover. One of the things about humor and comedy that makes it powerful is they can go to places that the rest of us can't go to. So it's it's a situation where having that in our culture allows us to break the ice on really, really challenging, difficult conversations. But that's also a strategy you can use if you're just having an argument with your family, right? It's You inject a bit of humor and almost immediately it's going to drop the temperature in the room. Yeah, such a good point. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to add, Matt? No, I think that was a really great conversation. And uh, guys, if you have any examples of de-escalation, like actually, you know, one more thing would be like, you know, if if you're like on a chat forum or a comment section on the internet, it's crazy how fast things things tend to escalate. Yeah, yeah. Like like all of a sudden, someone will just hurl an insult from the other side of the room. And then before you know it, the whole chat has, it's no longer a productive conversation. It's literally just two people going at each other. And since there's literally no consequences involved, well, there might be a consequence of, of an employer or a family member seeing these comments, but like physically... There's mm-hmm. no immediate consequence for hurling an insult at somebody you don't know or can't see. So um, I think that it would be good if people started thinking about de-escalation in these situations. Agreed. And treating each other a little bit more respectfully on the internet. Like, I think I think we talked before about how, you know, if there was a button you could press and yeah. then it immediately punches the person in the face on the other yeah. side of the keyboard. I think people would, uh, I think generally if people have faced more consequences for their actions in life, they will 
be act a lot different from how people act today. Yeah, I, I agree. There's something disassociating about the internet where I, I don't know if it's because there's not a person in front of you or if it's because there's no consequences to your actions physically. But for whatever reason, the internet tends to bring out the worst in people. And you see this on almost every like social media platform and public yeah. forum. I mean, a lot of the time, unfortunately, my best advice on the internet is just don't engage in that. You know, if, if someone is really trying to troll you or be destructive, if you go into that negativity, it's very hard to diffuse it. And a lot of the time it's just going to make things worse. Sometimes it's better to it, like in some cases, granted, it's just not realistic to do this, but if you can, I find it's often best to just not engage. Um, that said though, there are times when, you know, the, the negativity gets so great that it starts affecting your offline life. Man, in those situations, I honestly am not the expert. I don't know what to do or how to handle that. I, I'm not sure if anyone really does, but really the best strategy, as is often the case, is prevention. And my, my best Definitely. advice, yeah, my best advice is to avoid getting into arguments on the internet if you can. <laughs> and you, you probably can. Yeah. Cool. Don't engage. Yeah. The best advice. So just to recap the mental models we talked about in this episode, we talked about controlled breathing. Um, again, this is kind of like a, uh, an example of physical de-escalation on your part. We talked about staying loose, keeping your muscles relaxed under pressure. Uh, we talked about dictating the pace, meaning in this context that de-escalation does not mean that you yield the pace. You still want to dictate the pace, but when you're de-escalating, your strategy is to just make that pace a lot slower. We talked about funneling, which we had a whole episode on. This is basically the strategy of narrowing your opponent's options until they are forced to play the game that you want them to play. We talked about position over submission, such an important concept in jiu-jitsu where you focus on control rather than focusing on rolling the dice and trying to get a submission, which may backfire. We talked about double trouble, the principle of when you're trying to attack one limb, you want to control the far limb as well. Why do you want to do that? Because of the principle of rotational control. Um, a lot of powerful escapes from both arm and leg attacks involve the person rotating their entire body. And if you're controlling the far leg or the far arm, it takes away that option. We talked about the resulting fallacy. This is basically where you you get, Matt, as, as you described it, false positives, where maybe, you know, sometimes you think you're better than you actually are. Uh, really, the important thing to understand is that just because the result was good, that doesn't mean the strategy was good. You need to understand that sometimes you'll win even if your strategy was bad, and sometimes you'll lose even if your strategy was good. So you always need to evaluate your strategy on more than just wins and losses. We talked about economy of motion. Uh, generally speaking, and this is not always going to be the case, but less movement usually means less variability, which usually means more predictable outcomes. Not always the case, but in jujitsu, it seems to be the case a lot of the time. We talked about first principles, meaning that if you disagree with someone, try to roll back the discussion to the to the high level and find that common ground where you at least do agree. I mean, at the bare minimum, the vast majority of non-psychotic human beings are going to agree on a handful of core principles about what life means. And you should be able to at least agree on that and then start defining a solution from there. If you get so focused on your position that you just, you refuse to budge and refuse to listen, you're wasting your time even arguing with another person. And we talked about mindfulness, meaning you want to be aware of your own temperature and your own own response to conflict. Um, it's very common when you're confronted to immediately get defensive, but sometimes that can be the ego talking. And that is not always the best thing to just get defensive right away and get your back up. 
to be to truly de-escalate, you need to really be willing to listen to the other party, even if you don't want to hear what they're saying. Anything else to add, Matt? Man, you nailed it. Cool. Uh, should we plug the store? Yeah, let's plug the store. Um, good question or good point there, guys. So, Steve's been working really hard, and uh, we now have a store thanks to him. I I've heard all of your incessant complaining about patches. Uh, we found a way to do it. So we've got patches, and we also have T-shirts for sale on bjjmentalmodels.com/store. Uh, at this point in time, it is not publicly listed on the website, but as a listener, I'm giving you first access. So go ahead and go there, and we will get you those patches as soon as they arrive. Um, I'm currently selling them in packs of one and in packs of three. So go ahead and punch in your info, and I will get them shipped out to you. And you guys better buy them. Took yeah. a lot, it took a lot of work, and you were all asking. If you don't buy them now, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, guys, check check it out. It, it really helps us support the show, and uh, you let everyone know that you are listening to an awesome podcast about conceptual jiu-jitsu. Absolutely. So. This, this is not a podcast where we're going to, you know, we're not like Josh Hinger. You know, we're not going to give you advice <laughs> that's going to result or in Keenan, you. Or Keenan, thank yeah. God. We're not going to give you advice telling you to, like, tie sailor knots with your lapels. We're not going to tell you to do flying arm bars and concuss yourself. <laughs> Oh, fuck. We're going to tell you oh. real solid jujitsu techniques. Oh, God. I cannot wait for the hate mail. Oh, God. <laughs> you just did it. Seriously, though, I love both those we guys. We love both those guys. I love their podcast, and obviously we're just joking. So all you trolls can just shut the fuck up right now. Absolutely. <laughs> or you can write in as well. I mean, yeah. we love getting mail. So you yeah. can also write in and just, like, talk smack, and we'll probably honestly read it on the air. Yeah, so. actually, if you do write in and troll, <laughs> I would. we would love to read it on the air. That would be uh, that would add some character to the show. It, for it definitely sure. would. Definitely would. Yeah, we, we need a troll. We don't have a troll yet. Yeah, you guys need to start trolling. Yeah, yeah. I, I want at least one troll. Okay. So, Please don't talk shit about my DVD. Yeah, yeah. Don't, as long I, as it's I not, will engage you on the internet. Matt's DVD is off limits, <laughs> but anything else, feel free to troll us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a protected class. <laughs> but seriously, we, we love all the feedback. If it's uh, negative and positive, you know, that's how it is. Yep, absolutely. So we've, we've got one comment, uh, not so much a question, but I thought it was a good one. So I'm going to read it. Um, someone wrote to us and said, I came across a mental model in my work as a counselor that I think would be interesting to apply to BJJ, and perhaps you may be interested in it as well. It's a teaching model called Zones of Proximal Development, where the teacher gives lessons that are just beyond the skill level of the student, so they are not discouraged or frustrated by too difficult a task. I can definitely think of times in my jiu-jitsu journey when I bit off more than I could chew during training to learn too advanced a technique or trying to cram too many techniques into a drilling session only to abandon those later. Anyways, would love to know your guys' thoughts on this. Um, oh, that's that's actually awesome. Yeah. I, I definitely think that that's a great idea when you're when you're trying to teach a skill to someone or if you're learning a new skill that you want to give them um, enough work that they're challenged but not so much that they feel overwhelmed and they can't accomplish things and, and that it's just not within their reach. So I I think that's awesome. What do they call that? Zones, Zones of, of Proximal Pro- Development. Very, um, very good. Yeah, uh, we actually, you know, we'd refer to a, a, basically the same concept in earlier episodes and we just called it incremental learning, mostly because I didn't know that there was a name for this and it sounds like there is. So if this is actually a like a tried and true psychological technique, that's fantastic. And I, I think, Matt, you can agree as a parent of a toddler uh, zones of proximal development is very very important because toddlers get frustrated and distracted so easily yeah and yeah. it's and it's important to always you know like I said if you're teaching someone whether it's a, a student or a toddler um, to to keep them challenged and not just make it easy for them but yeah. at, but you know at the same time it can't be too hard that it's overwhelming and and 
not a not an accomplishable task. Yeah, you want to push them just like one or two steps outside of their comfort zone, but not so far that they feel it's hopeless and they don't get anything out of it. Like this is, yeah. I think, uh, also a very critical instruction, uh, or a very critical factor as an instructor. Absolutely, because yeah. you need to know this when you're dealing with junior people. You've got to remember that you're probably hundreds of steps ahead of them in terms of knowledge, and so when you're sparring with one of these people or where you're training them. You've got to remember that you need to be just a few steps ahead of them in terms of your material. If they're doing like basic, basic math and you're doing quantum physics, then you might as well not even be talking to them because they're not going to understand you and they're going to get frustrated. Uh, and in fact, I see a lot of instructors who do this where they just dive right into the deep end and they've clearly lost half of the class. I think that this is a, a really, really great strategy for reaching people who are more junior than you and gradually building up the level in the room. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely one of my own, now that I look back, one of my own uh, criticisms of my teaching style before was I would probably tried to teach too much or you try and cram too much into one lesson. And uh, one of the more challenging things for me as an instructor is to actually teach less mm-hmm. and to let the students really uh, let, let this stuff soak in for a long amount of time and not just move on to the next technique, not try and cram too much into a lesson. And, uh, you know, usually the results are a lot more, a, a, a lot deeper of an understanding of what, of the information you're trying to get across. So excellent, excellent work. Yeah. It's almost like Socratic learning in a way where you want to get your students to the point where they know what they don't know and then they start asking you for that knowledge rather than just like info dumping on top of them. Yeah. It's better to get them to the point where they they are like ready for the next step and they ask for it and then you've got that info right there ready for them. It's going to be much more easily absorbed and understood at that point. Very well. Cool. So thanks again for listening, guys. Um, again, the store is bjjmentalmodels.com slash store. You can also join our mailing list, bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, wherein Matt and I will send you barely educated screeds through your email, probably, let's say, once a week. Um, sometimes it'll be just like completely idiotic garbage from me. Sometimes it'll be insightful competition stuff from Matt. Um, but hopefully it will always be useful one way or the other. Yeah, and we really appreciate the support, guys. Keep the questions coming. And uh, yeah, very cool that we get to do this with uh, such a wide reach, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. Talk to you next time.